this weekend, we are kicking off a three-week series in the book of Psalms that is all about one question. How do we deal with difficult emotions, okay? How do we deal with hard, difficult emotions that we all experience? Everyone around the world in, uh, deals with difficult emotions, but as Christians, I, I see us kind of go into one of two ditches, okay? Ditch number one is we stuff difficult emotions, all right? We, we sort of subconsciously act like it's inappropriate for God's people to feel this way, so we stuff it down, we don't deal with it, and eventually, man, that leads us to being emotionally numb all over. So that's one mistake that we can make. On the other side of things, maybe we serve difficult emotions, and we allow how we're feeling to dictate what we think is true. And rather than preaching the truth of God's word to our emotions, we let our emotions preach to us and tell us what is true about God. So we either stuff them or we serve them. But what I love about the book of Psalms is it gives us a biblical model for processing hard, difficult emotions in the light of the gospel. It gives us a model for what does it look like to process these hard things with hope in who God is. And so I'm really looking forward to digging into these. Man, th next three weeks, we're going to talk about spiritual depression today. Next week, we're going to talk about guilt. And the week after that, we're going to talk about anger. And as I thought about, man, who I want to invite to come and kick off this series, name number one at the top of that list was Pastor Chris Gaynor. So when I served on staff at the Summit Church in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, Pastor Chris was a mentor to me there. I learned an enormous amount from him. Pastor Chris has been on staff at the Summit for 34 years, okay, 34 years. And what that means is that he has walked with God through a lot of valleys and over a lot of mountaintops. And as a result, he's uniquely positioned to just be able to encourage us with what the Psalms have to say about processing difficult emotions in, the, in light of the gospel. So would you join me giving a warm Center Church welcome to Pastor Chris Gaynor. Thanks, Josh. You know, I, I missed this in the first service. I, I don't really know how. Um, but you notice Josh kept saying <clears throat> difficult emotions, difficult emotions. Best person to talk to us, Pastor Chris Gaynor. I don't know, I'm a little offended by that. I guess he thinks I'm difficult and emotional, so that's why I'm here. He wouldn't be far from the truth. Uh, it's a privilege, a privilege for me to be here. Um, in early 2000s, um, I had the chance to make multiple trips to Chiang Mai, Thailand, um, to serve uh, on short-term mission trips. <clears throat> and on one of those trips, uh, we took our group to a leper colony, still in existence in northern Thailand. Now, I didn't know much about leprosy. I was a little weirded out because I was like, you know what? I don't really want to get leprosy. I don't want to come home with sores all over my body. I'm not thinking this is such a great idea. Because all I knew about leprosy was what I'd learned from reading the Bible right? So I knew those people were supposed to be outside. You weren't supposed to get close to them. They had these horrendous sores all over their body. And so I went to the leper colony just thinking these people are going to be just, you know, like, I don't know, just covered in it. I was super surprised when I got there that really all of them had beautiful um, complexion. Their, their skin was perfect, but they were missing fingers and toes, and hands, and arms, and feet, and legs. What I learned was that leprosy, while it does manifest itself on the skin, leprosy attacks peripheral nerve endings. 
So what happens is a person with leprosy begins to lose feeling in their appendages. And then they injure themselves, and they get hurt, they get cut. And because they have no feeling, they don't pay any attention to the wound, which then becomes infected, and then ultimately re, re, they realize they, they, they experience the loss of that limb. I hadn't really ever thought of it up to this point, but obviously physical pain is important. It's important because it signals to us that something is wrong and needs to be addressed. It needs to get our attention. If that's true physically, then it is also true in the realm of our spiritual selves and our emotional selves. Feelings are like the warning lights on your dashboard. I drove my wife's van up here, and wouldn't you know it, 10 miles outside of Raleigh, that little golden triangle comes on, lights up in the middle of the dash. And, you know, I, I mean, I'm like, what is this? It just says, service needed soon. I'm like, well, I hope soon is not until I get back. But that warning light tells me there's an issue that needs to be addressed. Feelings serve the same function in us. Listen, they don't need to be in, in ignored. They should be investigated. They don't need to be covered or masked. They're telling us that something might not be right. And that should move us to action. Psalm 42, where we're going to be tonight, is a haunting picture of what it feels like to be depressed spiritually. Now, before I go any further, let me acknowledge that depression, particularly clinical depression, is a very complex issue. And I am in no way suggesting that it is always and only spiritual. I'm simply tonight going to talk about what it means when spiritually we, we enter seasons of drought or darkness or despair. Psalm 42 gives us a picture of what that's like. But it's not just a description. It also gives us a prescription, a diagnosis, and a cure. We're going to walk through Psalm 42, and I think we're going to see two things tonight. One, what spiritual drought, darkness, and depression look like or feel like, and second, what we should do about it. If you've got a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to take that and follow along with me. If not, it'll be on the screen behind me. What does spiritual drought, darkness, and depression feel like? Let's walk through it. Psalm 42 shows us that the struggle is real. Look at verse 1. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? I'm afraid that we've lost the intensity of these verses because of the devotional imagery that's sometimes associated with them. Anybody in the room ever sung, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul. Some of y'all are like, please, let's don't sing that song. It's awful. At least your rendition of it is anyway. It's so peaceful and sweet, but y'all, that's not what the psalmist is describing here. He's describing a deer on the run, dying of thirst, but unable to find a stream to drink from. 
He's, he's not talking about a pretty little deer dancing in the meadows, sauntering up to a quiet brook to lap up a little water. The picture here is desperate. It's urgent. He's, he's literally feeling like he's going to die if he doesn't get something to drink. It's an intense and desperate longing. And the psalmist says he feels that way for God, but he, he can't seem to find him. God seems distant. Look at verse 3. My tears have been my food day and night while people say to me all day long, where's your God? Listen, he, he can't stop crying. Have you ever been there? Have you ever cried all night long? Have you ever been in a place where you couldn't get a hold of yourself? You couldn't stop crying. And, and it seems as though he's not eating either because he says, my only food has been my tears. And the outside world looking in, those around him, they notice that things are bad. And so they ask, where's your God? It, it looks to them as if God has abandoned him. The, the internal, it's an internal struggle, but it's not just an internal struggle. There's an obvious reality to everybody around him that something is wrong. Verse 5, why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? My soul is downcast. Listen, he's downcast. Did you get that? He's downcast and depressed. He's in the depths. And, and it seems to get even worse. Verse 7, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. He's overwhelmed. He, he's overcome. He feels like he's drowning, gasping for air. He can't get his head above water. The storm is too much for him. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? He feels legitimately forgotten by God and left defenseless as his enemies oppress him. Verse 10, my bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where's your God? Look, look he's suffering physically from what feels like a, a fatal disease. And here again is foes add insult to injury, claiming that that is evidence that God has abandoned him. Y'all, that's rough. But you know what? It's not an uncommon experience for the people of God. As followers of Jesus, we're, we're not exempt from this kind of thing. It happens all the time. In fact, the Bible is, is replete with examples of godly men who experienced this kind of desperation. Even giants of the faith. Surely you know about Job or the prophet Jeremiah who struggled greatly and said, Cursed be the day I was born. Elijah, after a, a spiritual victory, plunges into depression and says, basically, God, just take my life. I'm, I'm no better than anybody else. David, the man after God's own heart, even he cries out, how long, O Lord, how long will you forget me forever? Even the apostle Paul described one point in time where he was so desperate, so stressed, so depressed that he despaired of life itself. Listen, even Isaiah told us the Messiah, Jesus, would be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And in the garden, do you remember what Jesus said to his disciples? My soul is overwhelmed to the point with sorrow to the point of death. Listen, y'all, if you're struggling with this, if you ever have, or when you, will, when you do, 
you're in pretty good company. That's what spiritual drought, darkness, and depression feel like. So here's the question. What do we do? Do we just stand up and take it like a man? Do we just endure? Do we just push through? Do we give in? What do we do? I think this psalm gives us seven very practical things that you and I can apply ourselves to. Now listen to me. This is not a step-by-step process. This is not you start at one and you walk to seven and then all your troubles go away. This is how you fight for hope in the face of spiritual darkness, drought, and depression. What do you do? Well, those times are coming. There'll be times of deep hurt and feelings. Trust me, no one's exempt, but this psalm teaches us what to do. You ready? Let's walk through them, all right? Number one, you refine your desires. You refine your desires. Look at verse one. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? In a season of drought, you have to know what you really need. You have to clarify your longings, what you think you want or need, and what your soul really longs for may not be the same thing. In fact, I think it's pretty safe to say they probably most assuredly are not the same thing. Can we be honest tonight? Is that okay with y'all? Okay. Thank you. I'm, I'm allergic to pain. I have an intolerance for difficulty. I, I regularly tell people that I believe I was created for luxury and comfort. I'm attracted to abundance, pleasure, and peace. I want to be strong and sufficient. Truthfully, do you know what I want? I want a life that's absent of the need for God. But that's not what I was created for. I was created to know and love and rely on God. I was created for dependence, not independence. But if I don't tell myself the truth about what my soul really longs for, y'all, I'm going to work hard to devise schemes that will attempt to get for me something that will never satisfy. Some of y'all are running so hard. You're running so hard after stuff and things and experiences and status and relationships and image and approval. And most of you are exhausted from that pursuit. And you should know by now, from the trail of disappointment and dissatisfaction behind you, that none of those will ever satisfy you. One of my favorite verses is Psalm 27.4. I love the whole psalm. I memorized it years ago, and uh, in recent seasons, I'm, I've gone back and I'm trying to rememorize it. But 27.4 says this, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. One thing 
Can you imagine that? One thing, one thing, one request, only one ask, only one longing in the psalmist's heart to see and savor God. You know what astounds me about that prayer? The prayer of David in Psalm 27, 4 is that it doesn't come in a season of ease and prosperity. You should read the whole psalm sometime. It came in the midst of great hardship. He's under the threat of death. He's surrounded and besieged by an army. He's been abandoned and forsaken by his family. Even his own parents have rejected him. Yet, still he knew that his greatest need, the deepest longing of his soul, was to see and know and enjoy God even in the midst of great trouble and pain, not just escape the pain. Let me say one more thing before we move on from this. Refine your desires. I chose those words very carefully. To refine your desires doesn't just mean that you articulate some noble desire. Refining by definition is the exposure and removal of every impurity. And you know how that happens most of the time? By fire. You heat it up and all the impurities rise to the surface. And then they can be removed. Listen to me, church. You can't have a pure desire for God along with every other desire. You got to refine your desire. Number two, you got to remember the presence of God. Remember the presence of God. Look at verse four. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go to the house of God under the protection of the mighty one with shouts of joy and praise among the festive throng. The psalmist here has very clear memories of gathering with the people of God, experiencing joy and gladness, festivities and dancing, knowing the present protection of God and enjoying God himself. Y'all, these are not general memories of going to church. It's not just this faint remembrance of having been loaded up in the car Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and drugged to church by your parents. He's calling up specific remembrances of encounters with God at the temple. In hard seasons, you have to be able to remember and celebrate those moments when you experienced the manifest presence of God. You you can't afford to forget when God showed up, when he spoke, when he moved in power, when you recognized his presence and his protection over you. Center Church, there will be times when God shows up. There will be weekends When you might not be able to explain it, but you will know that God was in your midst and he moved in power and might and you sensed his presence and you heard his voice and you felt strengthened by the time you had with him. 
it will be a cherished memory because somehow in the midst of worship, God made himself known to you. And that experience has to be recalled and celebrated. That There need to be some weekends, some weekend gatherings that you guys talk about for years to come. You're going to need to be able to tell your children and each other, God was with us. And here's how I know it. But if that's going to happen, you're going to have to show up in this place on the weekend expecting to experience God. You can't saunter in here at the last minute like it doesn't really matter. Y'all, it matters. It matters that you get into the presence of God, that you know him, that you worship him, that you celebrate his goodness, and you call out to one another, he's worthy. You should approach church attendance like it's the most important thing in your week other than your personal time with God. All right. How many of y'all are single? Raise your hand. Raise them high. Be proud of it. Get it on up. You ain't never going to get a date if you can't tell somebody you're single. All right? How many of you have an outside hobby you just love doing? This is another group. No, it's only the single people. A couple of married people with kids. <laughs> married people with kids don't know what hobbies are. You're like, I ain't got time for that. All right, single people. Why don't you listen to me? I, I didn't get married until I was 47. Okay? 47. Let that sink in for a minute. I was single for a very long time. Here's what I know about you. Okay? I did it. You do it too. You don't commit early to anything. Because you got to hold out and make sure you don't get a better offer. Married people, you invite the single people over on Monday for dinner on Friday. And, and they will, they, oh, I don't know. Let me, let me, let, let me see. I'll get back to you. It's not because they're checking their calendar. It's because they're waiting on a better offer. They're all laughing uncomfortably. I just exposed them. Listen to me. Some of y'all, your hobbies are more important than your weekends, than your weekend gathering in church. Everything else, everything else is more important than being here and being with God's people. That's got to stop. And you got to come in prepared, and you got to show up regularly, and you need to be on time. You're not late for the movies. You're not late for a concert. Don't be late for church. And you need to come in clean, having already confessed your sins, have ar having already made, uh, made contact with the forgiveness of God available to you when you confess those sins. You need to bring your Bible and a notebook and a pencil like you expect God to say something to you that you don't want to forget. You can't afford to be ambivalent or indifferent to the opportunities you have to know God and celebrate him along with the people of God. Trust me, there's coming a day when you're going to need to know when and how God met with you and spoke to you. And you better be ready to mark it. All right, number three, you got to repeat truth to yourself. you got to repeat truth to yourself. Why are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Do you, do you see what's happening here? He's questioning himself. He's examining his feelings, and then he's speaking to his own soul. Listen, we live in a culture that has adopted this 
crazy sinful notion that feelings are authoritative. For decades, we've been told that if you feel it, if you feel like it, just do it. No limits or boundaries. Express yourself. Do what feels good. In recent days, our culture has taken up this, taken this to a whole new level of extreme. The world around us seems to believe on every level that feelings indicate reality and thus become identity. You know this is happening, right? Y'all living with your head in the sand? Yes or no? Listen, the Bible calls that living according to the flesh. And as the people of God, we are unequivocally instructed to reject that lie, to deny ourselves, and to walk according to the Spirit. Your feelings, listen to me, your feelings are real. But they might not be telling you the truth. They may very well need some attention and action. But I can tell you they probably don't need obedience. Just think about what the psalmist felt in this psalm that was not true. He felt abandoned. But the truth was that God was present and listening. He felt like he would be swept away and destroyed. But the truth was that God was his rock. He felt like God was against him, but the truth was that God loved him. He felt forgotten, but the truth was that God had promised him a hope and a future. Imagine what kind of mess he would have been in if he hadn't known the truth. This is one of the primary reasons that you and I need to spend regular time in God's Word. I'm not talking about five minutes of devotional reading in the morning. I'm not talking about a little run-through, a drive-through, a pass-by. I'm talking about sitting in it, soaking in it, meditating on it, memorizing it. Listen to me. Satan is a liar. The Scripture says he's the father of all lies. It is his primary method of attack in you. And he attacks your heart with lies about the character and purposes of God. And often those lies come in the form of of feelings. And if you're not able, if you're going to be able to navigate those lies, you better be armed and ready to speak truth, the very word of God. All right, number four, reaffirm the sovereignty of God. Reaffirm the sovereignty of God. Verse seven, deep calls to deep. In the roar of your waterfalls, all your waves and breakers have swept over me. Look, look, don't miss this. He acknowledges that what is happening to him is under the sovereign rule of God. You see what he calls them? All your waves and breakers have swept over me. He says, God, this is from your hand. Those waves and breakers, they are subject to your command. He acknowledges that God in some way is involved in his trouble. Look, the scripture regularly, repeatedly affirms this grand truth. Psalm 33, 9 and 10. Two of my favorite verses. 
The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Some of y'all need to write that down and memorize it. The Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Listen to me. No politician can thwart the purposes of God. No dictator in a foreign country can thwart the purposes of God. No neighbor, no boss, no ex, no boyfriend, no professor. Nobody can thwart the purposes of God. And you You need to cling to that. Listen to me. There have been things that have happened in my life that were hard and difficult. And I have had to look at those things and say, God is sovereign. I'm not going to unpack those for you. Some people have done horrible things to me. But you know what? They're not sovereign over my life. They don't have control over my future. They can't thwart what God wants to do for me. I have one sovereign one God, and he is thoroughly and completely, safely and forever seated on his throne. Listen, the sovereignty of God is a glorious doctrine that should bring us immeasurable hope and peace. Do not dare let go of this. Even in chaos and pain and confusion, God's still on the throne, faithfully working all things together to conform you and me to the image of his son. And according to Jude one twenty four, one day, one day, he's going to present us before his glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. And nobody can stop him. Number five, recall the love of God. Recall the love of God. Look at verse eight. By day, the Lord directs his love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. You know what? This is the only bright point, bright spot in the whole psalm. It's the only bright spot in the whole psalm. Even in the midst of great darkness, battling depression and discouragement, he still recognizes the flame of the love of God directed toward him. It says at night, he sings of that love. And then he turns that song into a prayer. You need to hang on to God's great love for you. And there's no clearer demonstration of that than in the gospel. Romans 5.8. You know this verse? This is another one you need to memorize. But God demonstrates his love toward us. Hang on just a second. Did you notice that that verb is not past tense? It does not say God demonstrated his love. It said God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Church, the current demonstration of God's love for you is not your circumstances. It's this fact. While you were still a sinner, Jesus died for you. That always has been and always will be the definitive demonstration of his love for you. I want you to think about this. The psalmist said what? I'm thirsty. I'm panting for water. I need to get to God. And Jesus on the cross said, I thirst. The psalmist said, hey, my enemies around me, they're saying, they're surrounding me. They're saying, where's your God? 
And Jesus, surrounded by the religious elite, by those who opposed him, said, those, those folks said to him, Where, where's your God now? Let God save him since he delights in him. The, the psalmist said, God, why have you forgotten me? Why, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? And Jesus on the cross cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist's declaration of hope at the end of this psalm is Put your hope in God, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And Jesus, on the verge of experiencing God's power in his life and being received into glory, says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Listen to me. Jesus experienced all of that in ways that you and I never will so that we don't have to be eternally separated from him. You better drive this stake deep into your heart so that when the winds of trouble blow, you won't be destroyed. God's great demonstration of his love for you is not and never will be your circumstances. Can I tell you how you need to think about that? Tonight, Christians in Ukraine can be confident of God's love for them. Brothers and sisters of yours in Afghanistan, under the rule of Taliban, can praise God for his infinite and great love. Christians in North Korea and India and Iran and Somalia and Nigeria, all of them tonight can be confident and sing of God's great love for him, for them. And they can pray knowing they are beloved children of God in the face of great persecution and in spite of their horrific circumstances. Can you do that? Listen to me. Confidence in the truth of God's love for you has nothing to do with how you feel. Because your feelings don't negate the love of God. Listen to the writer of Lamentations. Man, these are some of my favorite verses. Lamentations 3, 19 to 23. I remember my affliction, my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Y'all, we read that and we think, oh, he must be recalling something past. No, he's not saying I remember like it's in the past. He's saying I'm very aware of it. This is a present circumstance for him. Yet, he says, I call to mind and therefore I have hope because of the Lord's great love for us. We are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faith. Look, look at me. Be aware. Be aware of your affliction. Be tuned into your pain. N know the sorrow and darkness, but be more aware of a greater and more necessary reality. You have been loved with an everlasting love, and your Father has drawn you with loving kindness. Number six, remain in prayer. Remain in prayer. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about forgot, why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? <sighs> I love this. He's not lost sight. Even with everything that's going on, in spite of how he feels, he's not lost sight of who God is to him, and he's not stopped praying. I say to God, my rock. I say to God, my rock, 
no matter how dark and depressing, he still calls God his rock. Not a rock. He says, my rock. The psalmist is not withdrawing from God, deciding that the relationship is not worth the effort. He's pressing and asking, pressing in and asking questions. Why, why have you forgotten me? Why, why, why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? Y'all, he's still pursuing relationship and understanding. He still wants to know the purposes of God and believe in God's activity in his life. Listen, regardless of what's happening in your life and how you feel about it, the worst possible response is for you to withdraw from God. I need you to hear me say this tonight. Prayer is not primarily about changing your circumstance. The purpose of prayer is not to get something from God, but rather to get to God. More than you and I need what God can do, we need who he is. Y'all, more than we need the activity of his hands, we need to see the beauty of his face. I'm absolutely amazed that at no point in this entire psalm does he ask God to change his circumstance. You notice that? There's no plea for a change of circumstance. He, he doesn't cry out for God to silence or defeat his enemies. There, there's no request for the removal of the physical suffering he's experiencing. His plea, his singular plea is for the presence of God because he trusts God. If God never changes your circumstances or brings relief from your suffering, but you get before him in the place of prayer and know that he's heard your cry, that's enough. Number seven, reset your hope. Reset your hope. Look at verse 11. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. This psalm ends, listen, with an unrealized declaration of hope. Not hope fulfilled, hope waited on. I will yet, I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. He doesn't know when, but he expects that there's coming a day when he will praise the one who is his salvation. He's choosing to set his hope on the promises of God. He deliberately embraces future hope instead of resigning himself to present despair. Y'all, it's been a rough couple of years. Anybody else in the room? You've just been living your best life for the last two years. March 2020 was like a dream. Come, You're an introvert if that's the case. And I know that most of us want to believe that things will get better. But can I tell you this? We don't have that guarantee. Nothing in Scripture promises us earthly, earthly comfort, ease, and pleasure. You won't find it. Now, you might be able to twist the scriptures and wring that out of it, but it's not the truth. In fact, the scripture is pretty clear. It's going from bad to worse. What did Jesus say? In this world, you will have trouble. He didn't say you might. He didn't say it's possible. 
He said, you most absolutely assuredly will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. The word of God repeatedly tells us to set our minds on things above. To lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven and not on earth. In fact, Paul told the Corinthians that if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people to be most pitied. Listen, y'all, we do have hope for this life. We do, but it might, it might not be what you think, and it's certainly not what the world thinks. Here's our hope. We have hope in the sustaining power of Christ. We have hope in the sure promises of God. We have hope in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And we have, but we have a greater hope that is beyond this life. Paul expresses it in Philippians 1, 20 and 21. I eagerly expect and hope that in no way will I be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we be honest? Most of us, most of us can't say that. Most of us can't say that. Most of us live with an internal sense that dying and death is loss. But let me tell you something. The longer I live, the more dissatisfied I become with the things of the world. And I'm going to tell you, where I'm going is better than this. And you and I have got to position ourselves to believe that God has a hope for us beyond the grave. And that kind of hope, hope takes deliberate, intentional, daily setting of our minds and hearts on things above and not on earthly things. You want to know why that's hard for you? I'm going to tell you. Facebook, Instagram, you and I spend so much time looking at things that we think other people have that we don't have, and we turn our hearts towards the things of the world. Y'all, I'm not just talking about stuff and things. I'm not talking about possessions. For some of you, that's not the problem. It's relationships. You want that kind of marriage. You want that kind of boyfriend. You want that kind of girlfriend. You look at those pictures. Can I just tell you something? You know what I call Facebook? I call it fake book. It's not real. It's not real. Most of those people ain't got what they're trying to convince you they have. They don't. I see people's pictures, their house. I'm like, I've been in your house. It don't look like that. <laughs> it's never that clean. That pretty little plate you took a picture of, that ain't what you cook like during the week. I've been over there to eat. You ain't never served me anything like that. Look, I, I'm going to be real with you. I, I got two teenagers. I got a 13 and a 14-year-old. I'm 63 with two teenagers. I don't know who thought that was a good idea. I am clinging to the sovereignty of God. God is in this. I don't know why, but he is in this. I'm going to tell you, I get mad sometimes. I see people post all these things about their children. They're so kind and obedient and precious. They're teenagers. You know, they clean up the kitchen, doing all this stuff. I'm like, ain't it happening in my house? I'm not posting pictures of my family because you don't want to know what I got to say. 
Christmas cards. We got 8,000 Christmas cards. Everybody all dressed up, all smiling, all look like they're best friends. I said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to take the worst picture we got of the four of us, and we say the rest of y'all can try to fake everybody out. This is the real, of us, real us. Merry Christmas. Y'all stop. Stop looking at all that stuff. Quit looking at HGTV and the Discovery Channel and cultivating in your heart a longing for things. You know more about what you think the world has to offer than you can articulate what Jesus has promised you. My boys, they can spot a luxury, an exotic luxury car. I mean, like nobody's business. They scream and we think we're about to have a wreck. And it's just because a Maserati drove by. You know what's happening to them? They're cultivating a desire for the things of the world. Some of y'all got pictures of cars up on your refrigerator. You working towards that. Take that thing and throw it in the trash. You don't need to store up for yourself things or treasures on earth. You need to store up things for yourself, treasures in heaven. Let me make this point before we close tonight. We skipped it, but it's really important. It's not in the body of the text, but rather right under Psalm 42 in your Bible, there's a heading, there's a description. And it says this, for the director of music, a mascal of the sons of Korah. Everything about that description tells us that this was a song intended for public worship. Just in case there's any confusion, most of y'all don't need a director of music at home. Unless you're talking about somebody who's managing your Spotify account. A mascal, they don't know exactly, but they, they think that it was a poem or a song designed for instruction. And the sons of Korah, they were a division of the priests whose ministry they were charged with singing in the temple. Let me tell you why that's important. Because we need to sing about this stuff. We, we, need to, we need to sing about the aches and hurts and longings and brokenness and darkness. And then we need to call out hope and faith in each other. See, that's why we sing songs like, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. It's why we sing things like, when darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. Y'all, the hymn writers of old and the songwriters of today aren't glossing over the fact that there's hurt and pain and darkness and depression and drought. They're calling it out and then calling us to hope in God. And you need to sing about that in church and you need to memorize those songs and you need to go home and lay in your bed at night and sing them back to God because that stirs up hope and faith and confidence in God. I'm be honest with you. The last two months have been some of the hardest months of my entire life. I'm walking through something I never thought I'd go through. And it's devastating. You don't need to know the details. 
but it's hard. And to be honest, I don't really see a way out. I don't really envision. It's hard for me to grasp how things are going to change. But in the middle of that, I'm not going to give in to that feeling of desperation. I am going to believe the promises of God. I'm going to believe the end of Psalm 27. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And before you misinterpret me, the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living is not about circumstance. It's about his presence. So let me tell you what I did. I created a song list on Spotify. I titled it Hope. Nearly every song in that playlist mentions heaven because it's calling me to believe that I have a hope beyond this life. One of those songs, I asked these guys if we could sing it tonight. The second verse says this, I've got joy in chaos. I've got peace that makes no sense. I'm not going under. I'm not held by my own strength because I put my faith in Jesus and he's never let me down. He won't fail. He's never failed me yet. Why would he not fail me now? He won't. Y'all, we got to sing. We got to call out the darkness and the hopelessness and the despair and the pain and the drought and cast our hope on Jesus. Would you stand and let's pray together? God, I don't believe for a minute that your intention is to destroy us. I don't believe for a minute that you're looking to do us harm. God, I believe with all my heart that your purpose and desire in everything we experience is to make us ready for that day when we will stand before you and see you face to face and with countless multitudes from every tribe and tongue and nation, we will sing worthy. Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. God, do what you have to do to make us ready for that. And in the meantime, would you use us to stir up hope and faith and confidence in your great love for us as we worship together and fix our eyes on Jesus. Pray that all together in his precious, precious, sweet name. Amen.